We'll be turning now to our uh, main text for today, which will be in Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3, beginning, uh, we'll start studying in, in verse 18, I'm going to begin reading in verse 17. Colossians 3, verse 17. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God, our Father. Wives, be subject to your husbands, as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be embittered against them. Children, be obedient to your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Fathers, do not exasperate your children so that they will not lose heart. Slaves, in all things obey those who are your masters on earth, not with external service as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve, for he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done, and that without partiality. Masters, grant to your slaves justice and fairness, knowing that you too have a master in heaven. You pray. Lord, we thank you that you've created this institution of the home, the family and extended family, Lord God, and uh, that we have a social structure, Lord, that when we follow you, it works. Lord, uh, we pray that you will grant us wisdom today as we work through this text, as we apply it to our day and our culture, Lord, and we do it in a way that will honor you. Guide us in our time together. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As we begin this passage today, I think it's very important to start out taking you guys on a safari. Over the past week, I've received my hunter's permit from the state. It reads across the front, permitted to bag one 800-pound gorilla. (laughs) So that's where I'd like to start today, not on our text specifically, but I want to kill a gorilla. It'll make my sermon a bit more enjoyable, which I know you would all like. When people who read the Bible today encounter a text such as this, the first thing that many do, including those who are Christian, is to remark how incredibly unfair this is. How unfair for a woman to have to be subject to her husband's leadership. And, of course, the children have to lament that they're going to have to obey the parents. Sit in their seat at a restaurant and be quiet until they're asked to speak. How incredibly unfair. They'll lament. That means I also have to do my homework. The child cries and I'll have to go to bed on time. Life is simply so unfair. Especially unfair is the last relationship that we see in this passage Slaves, obey your masters. How unfair it is to think that a lower social class would have to do work 
for a higher social class and then actually embrace the work that they do. That is what Paul's suggesting here in reality. Contrary to what people suggest that Paul is endorsing slavery or promoting slavery, he is not. Instead, he simply says that if you find yourself in the position of a slave, you should be the best one around. Many would remark, oh, what a useless biblical principle. What good would that do? Not only do we find digesting a text like this a problem, we often mistakenly interpret things according to our closest experience in life. For many of us, we would learn in history class or through Hollywood the horrible atrocities of slavery. Especially, we would interpret it in the context of America and how horrible that was. It then becomes possible to be tempted to elevate ourselves above God's word and immediately dismiss the fact that anything good could have ever come out of being an obedient slave. Well, if that might be a perception that you struggle with, let me offer one example of something good that would come out of being an obedient slave. Reading from Genesis chapter 39, it says, Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt... And Potiphar, an Egyptian officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the bodyguard, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him down there. That would have been horribly unfair. Taken down by the Ishmaelites. That would actually be Joseph's dad's uncle's descendants. Ishmael's descendants. And the text goes on, The Lord was with Joseph, so he became a successful man. And he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. Now his master saw that the Lord was with him, and how the Lord caused all that he did to prosper in his hand. So Joseph found favor in his sight and became Potiphar's personal servant. And Potiphar made him overseer over his house. And all that Potiphar owned was put in Joseph's charge. Well, I think most of us know what happened from there. Some other unfortunate events, but ultimately, because of his obedience, Joseph ended up being second in the kingdom, except for Pharaoh himself. God used him mightily for what his purposes were. So there we find a good thing that can come out of being an obedient slave. Now, in case you might have mistaken to another conclusion that the 800-pound gorilla that I want to Slay is that slavery is evil. That is not the the gorilla that I want to slay. I think that slavery is horribly evil. I think it should be eliminated. Instead, the gorilla that I want to kill in this one is that God desires all the events of human history to be fair to everybody. God did not intend for life to be fair, He never promised us it would be fair. Nobody can honestly read through the Bible and come to the conclusion that life is supposed to be fair. It was not fair that Jacob was tricked by Laban into marrying Leah. It wasn't fair that God chose Jacob over Esau, as the way we would look at things, while they were still in Rebekah's womb. It wasn't fair when the prophet Isaiah, tradition tells us, was sawed in half by King Manasseh. 
It certainly wasn't fair for God's sinless Son to die on a cross for the sins that we've committed. Jesus didn't come to make life fair. He came to open up a door to be reconciled to God. Then after reconciliation, he provides for us an opportunity to serve him. We have a bunch of false religion out there today that is suggesting that Jesus came to make everything fair. He's going to bring the world together, I guess combine all the world's resources and divide it up in seven billion different portions, each of us receiving one, and it'll all be fair. That wasn't the mission of Jesus Christ. I would have to suggest if we take a look around the world, if that were Christ's mission to make everything fair, and if we were to view things after 2,000 years of humanity since Christ left, we'd have to conclude that Christ was a failure. Because things aren't fair. But fairness was never Christ's objective, and that is the reason the, the apostles never adopted the fairness agenda. The apostles instead spread the gospel to build a church. What Christ offered is forgiveness, not perfect social equality, as sinful man tries to continue to redefine it one way or another, whether redefining marriage or any other type of thing that they feel is fair. So since that gorilla has been sufficiently terminated, let's not download that perception of fairness into this text that we're going to read today. Instead, what God has provided to you and to me and to every Christian who has been born again is a role to play in redemptive history. We embrace that role primarily by being obedient. And as the text that I read previously in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, it says we're obedient from the position that we are, where we find ourselves today. So we begin our text today by accepting that God has a purpose for designing us in genders and male and female. He has a purpose of complementary roles. He has a purpose for where we are, where we work, how we are employed. And he's sovereignly placed us where we are today, and we should be thankful for it. In verse 18, Colossians chapter 3, the text tells us, Wives are, be, to, are to be subject to their husbands as is fitting in the Lord. There's nothing oppressive about this command. It clearly states that a wife's first loyalty is to Christ, as is fitting in the Lord. Within those parameters, it says she's to be subject to her husband. So contrary to accusations that are laid against the church and against the Bible, Paul doesn't tell a woman that she has to remain in a physically abusive relationship. It doesn't state that she must obey a husband who demands that she worships false idols. And it sure doesn't say that a wife has to do something wrong or ungodly when told to do so by her husband. None of those things would be fitting in the Lord. What does she have to do? Be subject to her husband's headship of the home. Instead of usurping his headship and criticizing him, a wife's role is to build him up to be the man that God wants him to be. She's supposed to help him grow in Christ. It's not only important that we point that out in this passage, but that also this is in the context of a Christian marriage. How do we know that? 
Because the next verse says, Husbands, love your wives, and do not be embittered against them. We know from Ephesians chapter 5, where there is a parallel text to this one, where Paul wrote at the same time another letter from the same prison that was delivered to other cities, that he tells their husbands to love wives like Christ loved the church. That would be completely impossible for an unbelieving husband to understand that concept. Certainly what we are studying here is in the context of a Christian marriage. So a Christian's wife, a Christian wife's responsibility is to respect her husband's leadership. And then to help him to be a leader that God created him to be. This is why Genesis chapter 2 calls you, the wife, a helper. You are not to usurp his role of leadership, nor covet his role of leadership. So the question I ask, are you mastering your role? Are you doing well with the role that he's put you in? The questions arise, are you smarter than him concerning some matters? I expect that's so. Great. Use your wisdom in finances or business or if it's your thing, auto mechanics, to build him up, but not to belittle him. Your role is a helper. Christ calls the Holy Spirit a helper. Yet the Holy Spirit is spiritually equal to Christ and God. As a wife, you are completely equal in value spiritually as your husband, and in regards to salvation, completely equal But your role is different. God created you to be a woman. Embrace it. There's nothing shameful about being a woman. Quit listening to the feminist movement that tries to keep turning you into a man. Why would you want to be a man? They're trying to destroy you and your marriage and trick you into forfeiting the reward that God is going to give you for fulfilling your role. Now to men, you also have a role. You are, verse 19 says, to love your wife. Do you love her? If so, you should accept her role as helper. God gave her to you to help you. Is she smarter than you with finances or some other item? Then value her advice as your helper. Ephesians 5, verse 28 says, He who loves his own wife loves himself. Of course! If your wife is more skilled than you in some area, utilizing her service and her skills and her wisdom is self-preservation. You're loving yourself by loving your wife and thanking God for the helper that he gave you. text also says don't be embittered against her if she is more skilled, smarter than you in some area. Do not resent her for it. Do not be embittered against her. You would be irresponsible to neglect her intelligence in an important decision 
since God provided her to you for this very reason, to help you. Worse than that, I'd say if you do not love your wife or family enough to at least consider the advice of your helper, you're also not mastering your role. You'd be mismanaging your role and the responsibility that God has given you to be leader of the home. Proverbs chapter 12, 15 tells us, The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man is he who listens to counsel. Making leadership decisions without wise counsel is not leadership. That's stupid. It doesn't matter if you're a king or a pastor or, or whatever you are, if you are not seeking counsel, you are eventually going to destroy the entity that you've been given responsibility over. It's the same with a husband. Your closest counselor should be that of your wife. If she is more skilled than you in finances, and she says that, you cannot afford or you do not need a boat, you probably really better think twice about whether or not you should buy a boat. Consider her your helper. But I would say if you seek godly counsel from her and you are making godly prayerful decisions for your home as a leader, I project that 95% of the time you are both going to come to a common unified decision. Now there's another 5%. It's arbitrary, of course. But there is going to be a portion of the time that their leadership decisions are going to have to be judgment calls. Now these decisions are not decisions that go against good judgment. They've already been completely eliminated by counseling with your helper. You soundly reject dumb decisions. The 5% I'm talking about are the gray areas. It may or it may not be a good idea. Your wife may not be for it, but she's really not against it either. In this situation, the husband is ordained by God to make the call. If your decision is wrong, your wife has the right to complain to you about it for the next 35 years. (laughs) No. You see, she wouldn't do that because she realizes it was a judgment call. You respectfully weighed her opinions and the circumstances that you're living under, and you as a leader made a tough call. For that reason, she respects you for it, and you, will, you and her will gladly work together through whatever problem was created by the difficult, possibly wrong decision. And you'll move on. An illustration I would use would be the house that Rita and I recently bought. Most of you know it was a repo. We knew going in that there was going to be some issues. But the price was right. It had most of the things that we wanted. There was a timeline that we wanted to be in a home in, to settle in. And Rita was not 100% for it. She wasn't completely against it either. But at one point I said, we're going to put in a bid, and I made the call. Now that we're in it, praise the Lord been a good call, not a perfect call, but we're happy. Made the judgment call. For the life of me, I can't figure out what is so horrible about all of this. A wife's role is helping her husband to be the best leader that he can be, and the husband's role is to love his wife enough not to force obviously stupid decisions. 
Neither is too much to ask. Now in verse 20, we have the child's role. The child's role is to obey, period. Again, this would be as is fitting in the Lord. It would not imply children knowingly disobey their parents, or disobey Christ to obey their parents, excuse me. There should never be that conflict in a Christian home, but admittedly, we do live in a sinful world. Teenagers, children, listen closely to me. You obey your parents for one simple reason. They're smarter than you. They've already made the mistakes that they don't want you to make. They've got the experience and they've got the wisdom. You children have neither experience nor wisdom. Verse 20 says, Children, be obedient to your parents in all things. That is well pleasing to the Lord. In addition, I can provide the young folks here two excellent reasons to obey your parents. The first is in the verse. It is well-pleasing to the Lord. Christians please the Lord by submitting to authority. And this character trait is learned while you are still young and still obeying the parents. It carries over then to when you become an adult. The obedience you learn, as is fitting to the Lord, gets transferred to civil authorities as you get older. You learn to respect civil authorities and laws. You respect police and military. Romans 13 assures us this pleases God. Christians aren't anarchists. We aren't rebellious. God doesn't like rebellion. This is why he provides you children another very attractive promise from Exodus chapter 20, which is repeated in Ephesians uh, chapter 6, by the way. It says, Children, honor your father and your mother, which is the first commandment with a promise. And the promise is this, So that it may be well with you, and that you may live long on the earth. So children, God wants what's best for you. You learn to respect authority, beginning with your parents, so your life goes well with you. And you live long, and you live peaceably on the earth. Or, you can disobey this command. You can learn to disrespect authority. Then you can ultimately learn to do 20 to life in Leavenworth, splitting rocks with a sledgehammer. It's completely up to you. We learn to respect authority by obeying our parents. Then we become obedient servants to, to our society. It's appropriate in this passage that after this call to complete obedience from the children that there, that there is now put a restraint on the parents, or on the father specifically. It says in verse 21, Fathers, do not exasperate your children so that they will not lose heart. Unreasonable demands can cause a child to lose heart, feel like they can never please their fathers. So this command to not provoke children is to help you, to help your children. It comes from our experience as well that a consistent um, criticism for not measuring up by the parents can be detrimental to a child. 
You want to encourage them as a parent, not exasperate them. Don't make them lose heart. Encourage them in what they do. Help them. Proceeding into the next verse, we find what we might consider an odd transition here from family relationships to that between slaves and their masters. However, it was common in in these times when the Bible was written that the slaves would live right in the homes with the parents and the children. So this is a household situation. The instructions are remarkably similar to children in the fact that they were to obey their masters completely. Verse 22 says, Slaves in all things obey those who are your masters on earth, not with external service as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord, rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. Though the exhortation for the slave to completely obey, like the children, the motive is different. It is not demand obedience to the father and the mother, but instead says in this text their service is to God. The slaves also receive virtually the identical command that Paul gives everybody else back in verse 17 that we studied last week, in whatever you do, do you work heartily as for the Lord, rather than for men. So here we find the lowest social strata of the day having dignity assigned to their labor Because slaves do not work for their masters. They work for God. Our text says that they're going to be rewarded for it. Would have been easy in that day to be living in that household, become embittered against the master's family, because the slave didn't get the inheritance that those kids were going to get. They might feel that their work will remain unrewarded, not so so different from us today. Many of us who work for wealthy businessmen and they have children that are spoiled and those children, of course, are going to inherit all of the company's stock. They're going to get the corporate plane and here we are working for a nominal wage thinking we are never going to get that. The good part is, it says here with the slaves, I would say the blue-collar people, God is going to reward you for being obedient, for being a good witness, for doing your work, you're going to receive an inheritance. Each one of us is going to receive an inheritance. Meanwhile, your boss's kids, after he dies, they're going to blow through their inheritance in about 18 months. You're going to be doing good. Verse 25 is most interesting in the fact that we cannot determine exactly who this warning is directed at. It says, For he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done, and that without partiality. In English, we would naturally assign this warning to the slave that has just been addressed. It likely could mean that. But the Greek doesn't demand uh, that interpretation. It is possible this warning could, in addition, be directed at chapter 4, verse 1. Regardless of the social class, Evil behavior, it says, is going to be punished. In verse four, or chapter 4, verse 1, seems that there was an unfortunate chapter division there. 
It says, Masters, grant to your slaves justice and fairness, knowing that you too have a master who's in heaven. Justice implies that masters were to provide that what is right. Fair means it's in in accordance with that which is equitable for service rendered. Paul informs and reminds the masters that the provision that they give to the slaves is not a charitable contribution. The slaves earn what they eat. The master is supposed to supply their needs while being reminded they too have a master who is in heaven whom they'll be accountable to. In that day, the masters didn't have to pay the slaves anything. Slaves are property. But if you want them to perform well, it might be wise to not withhold food from the person who's tending your garden. If you want them to be motivated to excel and grow a weed-free garden without pests, with beautiful vegetables and fruits and other things that don't have spots, and you want to have some real nice stuff from the garden there, you want them to work hard at it, maybe it might be wise to allow them to take some of those goods home too. Let them partake in in the work of their labor. You'd be delightfully surprised how that will improve what is sitting on your own table. We might today see this from an employer who pays their employees better than minimum wage. They might give more than what is necessary to keep them employed. And they'll see by treating their employees well, by paying them well, by being reasonable and fair and just, that they find that their business begins to flourish. You get what you pay for. Of course, again, this assumes that this is a Christian household. Unfortunately, in most of our real-life experiences, we don't always have Christian employers. Obviously, Christian employers don't always have all Christian employees working for them. So how would we apply these verses? How do we master our role, whatever that may be, in order to please God? I'd still practice them precisely as written. If you're a business owner, pay your employees, at least the ones that you want to stick around, somewhat better than your competition. Grant employees justice and fairness, and from time to time, put yourself in their shoes. They may come to leave at some point, and they'll look back, and they'll remember what a good employer you were. They'll remember that you were a Christian. They'll probably want to come back someday and work for you again. It'll be a good testimony to your faith. On the other side, if you're a Christian employee, work hard and be the best employee your boss has. You're going to advance. You're going to be promoted. If that doesn't happen, God's going to open another door for you. That isn't going to happen if you're a slacker. The only thing that employers want to do with slackers is either pay them, less, pay them less or fire them. Just getting by isn't enough. You simply can't advance as an employee by being a consistently poor performer. Your bonus is also realizing from this text that God is pleased with you. He'll reward you for your work. 
The competition in our society out here today, employers and employees, is so poor. There are so few hard workers out there. There are so few good employers. You can really stand out and shine. I remember when I worked in an aircraft hangar with over 400 mechanics working on airplanes, week in, week out. Out of those 400, I could maybe identify, looking back, two dozen that actually really worked hard and did a good job. You can really stand out. If you're a devoted employee, you're going to be valued by your boss, whether he's a believer or not. God's going to bless you for it. God's going to bless your family. Stand apart from the crowd. As I begin to wrap up, I'm going to ask the ushers to come forward now to serve communion. So when the man loves his wife and values her, values her opinions with dignity, and he invites her to submit to his loving leadership, he is mastering his role as a husband. Wives, you lift up your husbands, be the helper that God intended you to be. That's not oppressive. What is oppressive is our culture's view of women that objectifies their bodies, makes them something in dating that is to go out and be hunted and conquered, that's oppressive. Then the culture demands that women fill the role of a man. Wives, take a look at your husband. Do you really want to be that? Come on. Think about it for a minute. That reminds me, uh, quick sidetrack, back in the garden, we think about when the fall took place, and uh, the ground was cursed with thorns and thistles and pestilence and disease came in. And it talked about how the woman would have her role, bear children, keep the household. Men would have their role. They'd go out and basically dig a ditch. Now think about that for a moment. The husband, the big hairy one, goes out to dig a ditch, hoe a garden, whatever the manual labor is, the menial labor, And the wife, the beautiful, good-looking one, stays home with the children, nurtures them, teaches them about God, spends the day with those children, giving them life values, while the husband comes home late at night. They're both dignified, but who has the more dignified role? Wife's job's important. The husband's job's important. They're all honoring to the Lord.